Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Ready, guys? This is going to be the most exciting podcast in a long time. And the reason why is, firstly, it is the first time I've ever done a podcast in a sauna. Secondly, because it's with one of the people that I really love to hang out with and see, uh, Crystal Carmen, one of the co-founders of TransferWise, and one of our very first investments, and, and definitely one of my first investments when, when I joined Seedcamp. And it just seems like so long ago, back in 2010. And it's just really exciting to get this opportunity to share that story with everyone. So thank you for joining us, Christo. It's good to talk to you. Great. Well, look, I, one of the traditions of the podcast is to kick off with your early history. So walk us through those early days in your life. What did you do? What did you study in college and what did you do right afterwards? I'm from Estonia, which explains why we're in Estonia. So <laughs> yeah, it's good context, right? <laughs> yes. um, we've had a sauna in every one of our offices in, uh, in the UK. It's the only office that where we don't have a sauna is in, in Tampa and in Singapore because they're just pretty much you just go outside, you're in a sauna. You don't need a sauna inside. Fair enough. I'm originally from Estonia. It's a small country far north, east. I grew up in uh, the Soviet Union. We were part of that thing. Nice. And uh, then Berlin Wall fell when I was nine. Uh, since then, the the country was on the on the course to to be independent, but also meant we had to kind of build everything. So everyone had to be an entrepreneur in, in some way or the other, or, or other, because there's, there's no jobs. Uh, there's also no kind of economy to produce stuff. So you kind of had to produce your own. Um, I did go to study mathematics. I initially wanted to go and study philosophy, uh, but then my older brother convinced me that this is just, uh, that the purest, the, the purest form of philosophy is mathematics. So I kind of blindly listened to him and I went to study mathematics and realized it's just very hard. But I think it has been super helpful to have that, uh, that framework available to me that, that mathematics gives. Later in my studies, I, I studied locally in Estonia in, in our, we're a small country, so we only have a couple of universities. So one of those. And then, uh, of, of course, I optimized for for s- simpler things to do in my youth. We uh, all do, man. We all do. Yeah, so so kind of gradually moved from the hard mathematics to uh, slightly easier computer science. I had luxury even in the Soviet times that uh, we had a a, a Commodore PET two thousand one, which was built in I think early eighties or, or late seventies. A personal computer at home when I was. Uh, I was young, so I, I kind of knew computers. I had coded in uh, assembler by, by the time I went to university. So computer science was, it was easier for me. And then, um, once I got into the kind of master's era, I, uh, took up biology and, uh, got quite interested in how, uh, genomes work and how our cells get constructed. Wow. Okay. So a lot of, like, a lot of jumping there, but a lot of breadth. And so what, when you left, I guess when you left school, I mean, what was the f- first thing that you ended up doing? <laughs> when you, when you, 
when you finish school or, or when you kind of get to the later years of the university, especially at the time, you and when you when you study uh, when you study computer science, you have an opportunity to earn a lot of money as a student, and money is useful. So I yeah. I I started working when I was in university, mm. which made the university a little bit longer, but yeah. at the same time, uh, it was quite nice. So mm. I started. Um, I worked a bit in a, in a in a biotech at the time. Yeah. So our um, our goal was to uh, genotype the a big part of the Estonian population and then yeah. start doing drug discovery. So kind of finding out what kind of diseases um, um, are related to which kinds of uh, mutations on the yeah. on the gene, so that uh, we can come up with new uh, medication for it. That was like really early days. That was. Uh, uh, it's 2005 to that 2006. Wow. So right before the financial downturn. Yeah. Well, actually, probably even they, they had started when I joined, they had already been going for a, for yeah. a little while. So that was, that was the kind of the, the more academic, uh, yeah. part of my job. But then I ended up working for, uh, PwC, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Nice. Um, and, and the reason was that they, uh, they they had started selling consulting as a service in Estonia. Yeah. So Estonia has a it's a great thing in some ways that we're such a young country, so everything is new. So we don't have any kind of mm. COBOL systems at banks. Yeah. We have like relatively new stuff. New stuff. So the it was, it was really difficult for consulting companies to sell any consulting because there's nothing like there's no systems consulting to do. Right. It is already everything's pretty good, but then uh, then I joined them because uh, I think the complexity got to the place where our telcos and, and banks started needing mm-hmm. to kind of rationalize their their systems and processes. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I I worked a bit with the Estonian banks and uh, and telcos yeah. for for PwC. And what what this is roughly around the time that. You know, when, when did you meet Tabit? Because you know, you, the part of the story of when Transferwise begins is you know two friends meet and they work on you know what is now Transferwise. And was this around, around the time when you guys were? It was getting there, yeah. So uh, eventually, eventually, I realized that this this problem that in consulting in Estonia there wasn't any kind of problem to solve because it's already yeah. pretty efficient. Like the bank's pretty good. Yeah. The the telcos are. Are pretty good too, so I moved to London. Yeah, and uh, that was two thousand seven. Uh, I was kind of looking for, ha- having never lived abroad or studied abroad, I was, uh, I was assuming that there is uh, this big complex world outside, and it's worth getting to know it a little bit. So I started working for a competitor, yeah. Deloitte, but kind of doing doing the same thing, but now in a much more complex environment, working for for banks and insurers. Yeah. Out of London and then traveling to Europe wherever I was needed, and that was a lot of lot of fun. And that's where I uh, I met Tavit in a bar not far from here, as he had just moved from uh, uh, from Estonia to to London as, yeah. as well. So what was common for us is we were two two Estonians in in London. We we're a very small nation, so when someone kind of our age moves to London, you you Can't inevitably know, know that. <laughs> Who are the people your age or, or you, kind of your your friends group that uh, that would be that would be London? So we got to we got we got to know each other. We had a 
group of friends. We had similar things that we uh, get to do, whether it's kite surfing down mm-hmm. south or hanging out in kind of similar places. So, so that that was our connection, as simple as being Estonians in in London. And then another connection developed when uh, I realised that uh, there is a there's an interesting problem with those. Uh, UK banks that whenever you send money from my uh, HSBC account back to my savings account in Estonia, then uh, some of the money goes missing. Now, now we know this is uh, because the exchange rate they use is very different to to what I was what I was expecting when I was looking at Reuters or, or Bloomberg. And then, in order to get around this, so we kind of had the problem: banks taking my money. Uh, I had these friends in London who had the opposite problem. So Talvet was being paid by Skype still in euros, yeah. but now his living expense was in, in pounds. Yeah. So I had this friend that I kind of meet occasionally and and realized that why don't I give him my uh, pounds that I have here because he needs them. Yeah. And why doesn't he just make a, a transfer in euros from his Estonian bank to mine? We start doing that and... That kind of solves our problem, and we have other Estonian friends in London. And whenever uh, someone needed to to make a transfer, we had this little Skype chat. So before Slack and before uh, WhatsApp, people used to have Skype chats. Yeah. It's basically a chat room, and uh, is someone would just call out that hey, I need to move some money back to back to Estonia. Who's who's willing to do the other side? Yeah, and that's how we got around banks. And so, what's what's probably worth sharing is that time was the volume per month was what of money moved well for for me and for Talvet for you for your friends like for, for the, collect, the collective operation previously you know, <laughs> prior to being called transferwise what was the collective in a month <laughs> collective in a month in the Skype chat probably was a uh, uh, couple of thousand pounds a couple of thousand euros yeah uh, in in that region but then if you take it if we compare that to today <laughs> just just to just so that people can get a, a sense of the magnitude of how much you've grown what what, what is it today so today we're moving uh, over three billion pounds every month jesus so when, huge yeah so when we we go from a couple of thousand a couple of thousand euros solving the problem ourselves so now we have more than four billion, four more than four million people solving mm. problem for themselves using Transwise, mm. but overall it gives something like three billion pounds yeah. every month. So I mean, in, in a way, you had product market fit from day one because you were solving your own problem. True, we had product market fit for one person, for one group of friends. So there's yeah. still a hypothesis that this is not an Estonians in London problem, yeah. that this is French in London problem, and. Uh, uh, also, Brits in Spain problem, yeah. and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was still uh, still a, a hypothesis that it's not just us. Yeah. And then, of course, the big hypothesis that whether you whether your product works because you're doing it with friends. Yeah. Uh, but once it's an anonymous website built by two Estonian dudes, <laughs> and as reported on on TechCrunch in January 2011 when it launched, then. Uh, whether people are going to trust it as much as they trust their friends. What do you think was the key thing that you did early days to establish trust? We had, uh, as you know, in our early board board meetings as well, the trust trust was a big question. We were all we were all clear. It's obvious trust is a big part of why 
we either fail or, or, or succeed. There is no, uh, there is no solution to this. So there were hacks that people, people suggest in some of this we use, like, and let's put a, uh, an icon of a padlock on your home screen. Yeah. That's really, uh, that's going to give a feeling of trust. Yeah. It's kind of cues that people, <laughs> especially at the time, like 2010 used yeah. to use. One of the tricks though that the help with trust was, um, of course we started, uh, self-funded. Yeah. We, I think when we took the seed camp money, we were like, we had been operating for, uh, for a year, um, and as transferwise under this website. So we we're self-funded. We didn't have a lot of money to spare, but I, I was convinced that if you have a phone number on your home screen and it's pretty bold, it should, give trust. So we had, by 2010, it was pretty common for tech services. There weren't many, but the ones that were, were kind of hiding their support numbers. Like they wanted to be tech only. Yeah. So we took, from the beginning, we thought that it would be great if we had a UK phone number yeah. on the home screen. But so what, where does it go? Uh, like what happens if someone calls it? So I found this uh, receptionist service uh, that I, I think we pay like £25 a month. And there was someone on the other side who said, Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for calling. Uh, could we take a, could we take a message? And then they took the message, they typed it up, uh, sent me an email, uh, and then I called the person who, who called the line. So we kind of had this inefficient loop, but I'm pretty sure there was like, 99 out of 100 people just trusted that there's a there's a phone number and therefore it's more real than, yeah. it, than it maybe is. Well, I mean, it also probably reinforces the fact that there is a human connection to tech. You can't just hide behind your product. And, and you guys embrace that early on, especially with financial services, which are, are inherently scary. But I think another thing that helped with trust, which is unique to you guys from, from my memory, is that it's very easy to trust a service where you can test out a small amount in goes one pipe, out comes the other, it works. And then you, you're willing to do it incrementally. I think, you know, I, I don't envy some of the newer services that are like based on AUM because you've given them money and you don't know where that money went. You know, you hope it's there by the time you ask for it back. And I think that's a very different challenge. I think that that was something was unique to that period and to, to what you guys were doing. But maybe you can walk us through what other elements the fintech industry had in that era. Like what... What was it like working with, with the banks? What was it like working with investors that were looking at the fintech space? Was, you know, cause right now we take fintech for granted as like a hot sector, but what was it like then? So let's start with what fintech meant back. The word fintech mm. meant you're building technology to sell to banks. So things like TSIS and Pfizer, these were fintechs. They're mm. basically building software for, for banks to use. So the, the word fin fintech really changed its meaning in 2013, 14, 15. We have to remember that in 2010, the only fintech as we know today that existed was probably PayPal. That was it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. There's literally nothing else. The kind of monzos of the world were hadn't been invented for the next six years. So we're 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 coming. We're coming into the place where financial, <laughs> no one believed that, well, hard to say that no one believed, but financial services on the web hadn't been done. At best, in, in the Nordics, in, in Estonia, in the Eastern Europe, 
we would have uh, internet banking. When I came to the UK, even internet banking was rudimentary, let alone mobile banking. Mm. So this, this kind of idea that people would use the internet to deal with money was very, very new. And you're right that we completely benefited from the idea that you can test it out with very low risk and, and very quickly so you'll know whether this thing works or not. But there wasn't really any kind of an ecosystem. And when we got started, we were also conscious that this is a licensed activity that we're doing. Mm. So we're kind of dealing with other people's money. And I've been close to this in like the financial industry that I, I understood that this thing has to be regulated. So we uh, went in and got a license, which was also very new for tech companies. They had never, they'd never usually do licensed activities. They would kind of wait until they get slapped and then, uh, then get licensed. However, I think when, when we did get our first license, I don't, I don't know how much the people who gave us the license, the, financial services license once they actually understood what what was going to happen or what's uh, what's going to come uh, what's going to come of it and how this thing works mm. but it it all came through in the end and and you know at the end of it it was very helpful for you guys to stand out for sure create that trust yes and it was front and center too it was a part key part of the brand as well i mean the licensing yeah it it was it was it definitely it definitely helped and i I think it would have been useless to kind of hide hide behind it. I think we're it was a because it was so new. Yeah. We probably were a bit lucky that we got our licenses like processed relatively yeah. quickly. I mean, a year is pretty fast yeah. uh, in these terms. But yeah, without it, it shouldn't it shouldn't work without. Yeah. So I mean, there's a reason why we have licensing. Yeah. We shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to handle other people's money without it. Yeah. And the funny thing is that, you know, the other organizations that handle people's money with it are banks. And and you, from the very early days, did a good job of marketing yourselves vis-a-vis and relative to banks. And one of the most iconic marketing stunts that you guys did was being effectively naked in Liverpool Street Station, if I recall correctly. By the way, I never got an invite to attend that, so I, I take that personally. But it was an amazing stunt at the time because it was trying to share, uh, shed light on transparency that you guys had versus banks. And, you know, that, that's been something that's been impressive about TransferWise ever since, this sort of really bold marketing, really bold positioning. Walk us through the decision of, of taking that stance, not only and sort of positioning against banks in one way, but having to work with them at the same time, and then at the same time being super bold on how you represented the brand when you're at the same time trying to create trust and and sometimes the pre- preconceived notions of what a trusted brand looks like, you know, old, stodgy versus new and fresh, but potentially, you know, reckless. How did How did that whole decision play out and how did you make early day judgment calls on that? This is a very good question. I've uh, now had time to reflect on this a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think this whole thing gets tracked back to product. I recall this very, uh, it's very clear in my mind, it's probably like 2010 sometime when I had built the first website and I was showing it to my friend who, uh, who's been in finance before and is generally kind of smart, smart dude. And I said, Hey, remember this thing that we do in the Skype chat? 
I have built a website for this. Yeah. Do you want to give it a go and see how it works? And he goes through this and then uh, he gets to the end page where there's an exchange rate and says, so what's the exchange rate? Like, where, where does this exchange rate come from? And they say, well, it's the, uh, I take the, the mid-market of the Reuters exchange rate and then I add like 0.5%. And then he goes like, who are you to give me this random exchange rate? And his point being that the fact that the exchange rate is cheaper than what we would get from the banks, and the banks would charge us uh, perhaps 5%, or mm. like 3 4 5%, it doesn't give you the license to uh, to kind of hide your fee in the, in the exchange rate. That's what that's what he alluded to. And that that basically gave us the the stance in the product that we always are transparent on the, on the exchange rate. So we, I realized that the whole problem that I was solving in the first place was the bank was ripping me off. It wasn't that it was expensive, it was that he was ripping me off. It was the fact that he didn't tell me that, uh, I, that, that he's taking like 500 pounds of my money. Yeah. If he had told me it's 500 pounds, then I might have gone and searched elsewhere or yeah. I'd be, at the end of the day, happy to pay it because yeah. I didn't find anything else. But what I what I reacted against when I when lack I went of transparency was the lack of transparency and the the feeling that he was he was like doing this on purpose that yeah. the bank was so that was actually built into the product from the from the outset and this was the first time that this has been been done and it's still relatively rare today mm. that services like ours would be willing to explicitly show the fee or the revenue that gets gets mm-hmm. charged so it's, it's okay when it's small we charged uh, at, in the beginning 0.5% now it's more like 0.3 if it's a thousand pounds yes it's five pounds it's not a big deal but I re- remember uh, speaking to a customer uh, still in relatively early days that was buying a flat in uh, New York and this was multiple millions of dollars and she saw a fee of thousands of thousands of pounds and she didn't have an issue with that because she had done the master with Barclays it would be like tens of thousands of pounds that yeah. you would uh, that she would she would lose so so the idea that transparency was actually part of the product yeah it was a huge risk a huge statement that it's possible that's if there's any legacy from transferwise ever it's gonna be it's gonna be that it's yeah. gonna be the the idea that that money should exchange at the at the mid market, and then you can charge whatever you like, but yeah. you have to be public with it. Mm-hmm. And when we when we kind of uh, so actually maybe a, a cool story before we t- take to marketing is in the very early days we did we built an invite program quite quickly, so we realized that our users talk to their friends, and if they're uh, foreigners, they're quite likely to have. Uh, expat friends mm-hmm. and <laughs> when I when I built the product I uh, it was it was literally an invite form you type in someone's email address and then there's a pre uh, pre-written copy of you know, that's the text they would send you could edit it and kind of send your own stuff or your own message to someone that hey use transferwise I use it and um, in order to test this we had to kind of log out what the messages were so one day I was, I was bug fixing something there and I went and I, I checked the, I just realized I have, I have a huge list of things that our users have told their friends about TransferWise. 
And that was quite fascinating. So you kind of realize that from marketing, all you need to do is basically <laughs> use the same words that people who have success, successfully converted their friends to use TransferWise. How do you, like, how do you use the same words to, to do your marketing? Yeah. So understanding the language of your customer. Exactly. Or, or rather letting your customers write your marketing. Yeah. Almost. So somebody said naked. <laughs> no one said naked, but people said, people said the things that were, they didn't say that, hey, you use this thing. It's really trustworthy. They said, use this thing because it actually shows you how much you pay. They're not hiding anything in the exchange rate. It's like fast. It's cheap. Like the things that we learned what customers care about. And, and they, even their messaging was quite anti-bank. Like I saved doing this. I saved X over what the bank would have taken. Mm. And then I realized that, okay, so if that's the thing that mattered to me in the beginning to kind of start this whole thing and to our users today, then why don't we, like, how do we make it explicit? Yeah. Uh, how do we, how do we show that that's what we stand for? Mm. And, uh, and one day one of, uh, our, marketing guys came to me and uh, gave me a, a pair of uh, Transwise branded underpants said, Krista, what do you think about wearing these tomorrow? And that was, was it. That was it. So it was his idea. <laughs> it was, it was, it was his idea to do like, how do we, de- how do we, how do we show uh, that we're really kind of up for this? So yeah, it was, it was a decision, bold decision to say, you know what, I'm going to go with this because it'll, it'll really cement that. But how did you balance that boldness with the conservative nature of financial services at the time. And also, how did you balance this sort of this working with banks, but at the same time, basically making them the villains? Was it a judgment call or was it more like a balanced act? Well, we had to work. We had many years uh, through which we were able to, to work this kind of work this balance out. So it's Mm. not, it's not like you, you have a board meeting and then you have a, Either you have a balance or you don't have a balance. It's more kind of over the time you you work out what or what's too far or or what works. We 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 saw a few things. We saw that the marketing kind of works. We we I think both Tavit and us we we really don't like to take ourselves too seriously. Yeah. So we part of the marketing had to be, it can't be a very kind of serious or like a serious attack. Mm-hmm. So if you think of all these early stunts there, they're funny. Yeah. They're like a little bit like quirky. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that style suited us. Yeah. And it made it less aggressive for yeah. a little bit less aggressive for, for yeah. banks as well. And whenever I met the bank CEOs at the time, I was also very clear that I don't mind what you do as a bank and yeah. I, and I worked for banks. I, I know it's hard work. Like there's nothing wrong with your product apart from this one thing. You should be really transparent with the pricing. And I keep telling so you, you that. So you gave them the advice. They just wouldn't take it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I gave the advice to the, to the chairman of the FSA at the time. And that's hilarious. And, and everyone, so you, were completely, you were completely transparent across all boards. I, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you're saying, look, I'm going to tease you, but I'm telling you what to do. Uh, not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what's what's pissing me off and what's pissing our users off. Yeah. And uh, you have a choice to fix it or not. Or not. Yeah. Well, fair enough. 
feel that that's fair game. And, and I think maybe maybe the last thing about some of the history before we move about uh, Transwise today as it is today, you have some really interesting investors, one of which is Richard Branson. You want to share any any fun stories about talking to investors early days versus later and then and, and obviously your interactions with, with guys like him? It's fundraising is um, is interesting. It's kind of part of... Uh, Part of the story, part of building the business, but it was very different in 2010 than it is now. You know this, right? Yeah. Back in 2011, when we started uh, properly fundraising, we 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 raised in London. We thought we're going to take seed camp first, so just open some doors. Nice. Just put us put us on the put us on the map in yeah. in London. So when we need to fundraise, we'll, we'll just kind of use that yeah. as, a, as a token. And then we spent spent some time, like three, four months, talking to VCs in London, who at the time, you know, they're, they're not really comparable. Like they were, they were upstarts. They were just kind of trying to figure this thing out. This yeah. thing had kind of existed in the West Coast, but but not in Europe really. Yeah. And uh, it just wasn't going anywhere we weren't yeah. sure whether we were really bad at fundraising yeah. or, or uh, London wasn't ready for you uh, yeah this definitely was too new so yeah. the thing is there's nothing to pattern match to yeah. there's nothing like paper. you don't pattern match to PayPal mm. you don't think that uh, two Estonian dudes can do something uh, in London that you know you can only pattern match to PayPal that's just stupid yeah um, but then we uh, Somehow the word got out to the uh, to the US as well, and we met a fund called IA Ventures. They were also just starting up. I think we were they were at the end of their first fund, so they'd been investing for a couple of years. Uh, we met a guy for um, for lunch called Roger Ehrenberg and uh, his partners. Uh, One of the smartest guys I know. Uh, he still is. He still is, and he. Called us back a day later, said, "Hey guys, let's do it." And then, of course, all the all the European investors that we we met before, they also kind of wanted to come in mm. when there was a when there was a lead investor. As as it is with fundraising, especially first fundraising, I'm sure you can see this all the time. Is it's very hard to find a lead. Yeah. Once you have the lead, you have a lot of followers. When raising funds and when raising for startups, having a lead matters. Exactly. So so we got our first uh, round of funding. The reason why I talked about this for so long is the first time was the only hard time. So since then, fundraising for Transwise has been, has been really, really easy. I'm, I'm almost uh, a little bit embarrassed to talk about this because, because it has been it's very straightforward uh, every time. It's just the first time that was hard. We've been really lucky in this sense. So we had the option to choose who, who we want to work with, yeah. who we want to uh, have our supporters and... We knew that we we knew of uh, uh, Richard Branson, and he had he had made some investments already. So we pitched them. I think in our A round, he didn't he didn't take us. Mm. But then once we got into the B round, he came on board as well. So that was that was amazing. What was the question he asked you? Do you remember? I think his questions or his team who who worked with us his questions were pretty 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 similar the the luxury with him and people who fundraised know this that 
when someone's looked at you before in the previous round yeah. and you haven't cocked it up in the meantime, yeah. they see that you actually hit your forecast or do better, then they're very likely to, to come along. Yeah. That's probably good, pretty good advice for anybody listening to this is sometimes the, the initial conversation becomes the conversation that really closes the deal later. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is probably not a bad time to, like, name-check a couple of people you want to thank along the way, you know. But, Are you hunting for something cause? <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I, I can name a few guys, but, but I don't know, like, other investors that are... The, the, in terms of investors, our... We started with Seedcamp. Actually, Seedcamp, uh, you've asked me kind of feedback what worked, and at the time, especially, what we didn't have in London was a, was a community. Mm. I don't know if that's the case anymore but the fact that there were 15 other founders who were also trying to figure out how mm. this kind of building a company thing mm. works and building a product and so on that was uh that was super useful as a mm. and, and helpful for 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 us to kind of find our feet mm. the u.s trips they used to do at the time yeah seeing oh, how, uh, how, how they still do those that was that was fun uh but yeah then then along the way we we brought on we brought on Roger, indexing in the UK followed, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, in our A round uh, we met two very interesting guys, Valor guys. <laughs> yes, they love those guys. <laughs> people who haven't met Valor Ventures, uh, we met them uh, actually behind the tea building in a bar. Yeah, kind of similar story. I have my tablet, yeah. and uh, they showed up. They had cowboy boots and cowboy yeah. hats and ordered a beer and were really interested in the, in the company. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out they, uh, they work for a PayPal founder who yeah. had also made a fortune investing into Facebook. And then a, a week later, although we weren't really fundraising, these guys made us an offer we can refuse, which brought them on board. They did the next round with, with Roger as well. So we had a yeah. pretty good funding. In the meantime, we managed to bring on, um, individuals like Vikram Pandit, who used to be there, uh, used to be a banker himself and, and a few, other, and a few others. Errol, who started Wonga. Yeah. Was kind of people who had started to do something here, yeah. kind of found them and, and, and brought them on board. But we had the luxury to kind of choose people yeah. who invest. We had, uh, when we were raising our Series B, yeah. uh, we also pitched to the to the part, partner meeting in Andreessen Horowitz. Yeah. And so Ben Horowitz still <laughs> kind of I'm telling the story because he told it first. Uh, they they made an they made an offer. They wanted to invest, and the offer was pretty good, but it came with a caveat: you guys have to move to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, happy to invest in you. Have to give you money when you ask. Have to move to the Silicon Valley, and it was understandable from their part because they were starting VC company. Yeah. They were like great execu- executors before, but they feel that if they want to add value to the company, they the company needs to be uh, next to them. They need to be next to the company, and uh, we declined. We took the lower money instead at the time, and and the time went on, and then. Uh, it's kind of starting to be similar to the Richard Branson story. Uh, a few rounds later, we we meet Ben Horowitz again, and we pitch again, and he still wants to invest. The valuation has gone up four times, but he still wants to come on board. And now that we're a much more established company, 
and kind of I think they've equally become more comfortable with uh, with the value add that they can offer mm. internationally. They came on board, so Ben Horowitz became a board member, and then since uh, since then our funding story has has gone more into the kind of more growth stage. We took on IV, IVP mm. as a well known late stage investor in the US. We brought on more like public market investors like mm. Old Mutual and and Bailey Gifford, mm. uh, kind of starting to shift the profile a little bit. Mm. Yeah, no, it's and it's, it's it's a good it's a good starting point to start discussing this idea of cross borders, right? Because you have cross border investors, but now you also have cross border offices. And I'd love to hear kind of what the state of Transferwise is today. How many employees? How many offices? And in what countries? We're uh, one thousand three hundred people and counting. We're in nine offices properly. We have some more subsidiaries and some more. People on the ground, but nine proper offices. And we have to be, I get this question asked a lot with Brexit, etc. Like, where is our headquarters going to be? Mm. And then I ask, where is our headquarters now? Because I can't really tell. Mm. Legally, it's kind of here, but does it, does it have meaning for a, a company that is as international as we are? And that has that kind of has to be the the nature of nature of us. We're we're also seventy one nationalities working here. Mm. Um, if we're if we're serving uh, about fifty countries, people in fifty countries, we kind of want to want to have the people who speak the language, who yeah. understand the culture, and so on. We can pick up the phone. Can pick up the phone, and uh, we have people walking to our offices with like was of cash that we sadly have to send back and say that we don't deal with cash. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, happens all the time. That's what usually companies find really hard is to um, internationalize or yeah. to internationalize their their workforce. There are some who have uh, successfully been that from the outset, yeah. so they maybe don't have a location. Everything yeah. is uh, is online. We were, again, a little lucky in the beginning because uh, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't hire anyone in, in London. I couldn't afford to. Yeah. I couldn't hire anyone in Estonia because I couldn't afford to mm. because we had Skype. Yeah. Every, everyone, everyone really good was kind of used to Skype salaries and oh, wow. I had no, none of that money. Um, so I actually started our first engineering team in Ukraine. Oh, wow. And we still have the team. We have an office in, uh, in Ukraine. And, and it was only later, once we started hiring engineers in, in Estonia, and then even later when we started hiring in London, and mm. even later when in, in New York. So we were kind of constrained by cash for, for, for a long time. Mm. But what it gave us was that uh, we, we almost started in three locations in the mm. beginning. We, uh, we, we needed operations, and mm. we knew people in, in Estonia um, who were... Can, could be trusted with money, mm. with our customers' money. So we set up operations there. We started doing customer service out of Estonia and then added uh, engineering products, etc., etc. Mm. But we were almost from the beginning in London, Tallinn and Cherkasy, mm. uh, Ukraine to begin with. And since then, we had all these problems, like how do you do team calls? Like How do you communicate? How do you make sure that you never have a phone call without video? And in 2010, it's kind of hot to establish. Yeah. Now it's quite normal. Um, we had, we had to live through these, through these pains 
in the early days when we were small and it was easy. So now that we, uh, we've added offices in Tampa, Florida, in New York, in Budapest, we have uh, more than 100 people in Budapest. We have more than 100 people in Singapore, an office in Tokyo with a few people there. We kind of have it in our DNA that we need to think about people in the other offices and just, just need to, um, care for them. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that makes this expansion easier. Often, often I see where, uh, people have built really efficient teams that operate locally, then it gets very painful once you're like 100 engineers. How do you have another engineering team of 10 engineers in a different mm-hmm. location? So how did, I mean, you kind of alluded to it with a couple of comments there around, you know, uh, phone calls and video calls. And you, know, you shared the story about how Andreessen wanted you to move to the Valley. How did you do two things? One, balance the, the way that you developed culture internally to accommodate for these multiple offices because you were both hiring for here but also firing for some remote area and then trying to establish the culture that you have here over there without you being on a plane every day. So that was part one. And then part two is how did you then avoid the temptation of going prematurely to certain markets that potentially were, were more attractive, not because they were, but because sometimes, you know, investors can make it sound that way and prematurely internationalizing into, into other cities or geographies. This is a, this is a very good question. I'm pretty sure we had some prematurity over, over the years and, and we probably were lucky to kind of, that these prematurities didn't kill us yeah. and we, we lived, lived through them. There was definitely a, in terms of expand, expanding transfer product into countries, mm-hmm. there's definitely a time where we were, um, going really hard at this and it was hard just adding more kind of languages, kind of break the, the operations team gets more complexity every day. The, the customer service team gets more c- complexity every day. They just, it's just breaking the operational team. So there were times where we had to slow down adding new countries just because we couldn't operate them. Mm-hmm. Just the, the operational constraints were so, so bad. And then we, we kind of realized how to balance this, that then these engineers who would otherwise be adding new markets, if we make them feel the pain, they would better choose when they were are going to make the existing integrations and operations better because that usually takes engineering effort to kind of improve your, your operating tools and so on uh, versus when they uh, when they're going to go and add new countries so there was uh, now maybe four or five years ago we had this uh, this idea of a uh, of a currencies team and that was their job. Uh, it was an engineering team, product engineering team. They would be going out and adding new countries, basically internationalizing transferwise. And there were endless debates about like, which is the next country that we should ha- add? Is it, is it this that has so big remittance volumes or is it that other one that is easier to do? And then we realized that these debates are just wait- wasting our time and we uh, were regionalized. So that was one of the phases where we said, Okay, we're not going to have this massive prioritization problem. We're just going to make smaller units. So there's going to be a unit that looks after Europe. So they, it's their choice whether they're going to add another country in Europe or they're going to make an existing country better. And they have metrics. So whichever brings more users 
or, or something else, like whichever is more valuable uh, from our mission or from our user's perspective to do. They do that in Europe. And then we have this other team that does South America. And they're completely well stacked to do their bit and they can kind of go away and prioritize their, their own thing. But we don't have this kind of huge Excel spreadsheet, so whether it's Nepal mm. or Peru next, mm. uh, or whether it's actually making Poland a little mm. bit better. So that, that kind of addresses the, the sort of being pushed into a market prematurely by an investor because of something. It, it, it kind of showcases the, the way the methodology you use to expand. But it, it still leaves the question about how do you synchronize culture across a company? Because, you know, there's there's all sorts of rules of thumb about this. You know, some people say that if you're going to open up an office, especially let's say in the U.S. Or, or anywhere that's kind of substantially far away, that the founders need to be the original team that goes and initiates that and makes the first key hires so that, you know, the culture doesn't get out of sync. How did you guys manage that? We were, so almost all of my answers are going to be, we were just lucky. But there's, I think there's some patterns there, why we're lucky. So in, in terms of culture generally, uh, Tavid and I, we, we had the luxury of, of choosing to do TransferWise at our own free will. Mm. So we, don't, we could do anything what we wanted to with our lives. We chose to do TransferWise, which means that if we're already committed to doing this, we might as well do it like, we might as well create a culture and environment that we enjoy working in. Mm-hmm. Um, I had previously worked in consulting. There were definitely elements there that I, I didn't enjoy. And Tom had some pretty good experiences with Skype before. So we were very meticulous of n- not even thinking about doing anything that we, um, we didn't like or mm. we didn't want to, we kind of did, did it for ourselves, mm. basically. We built a company for our, for ourselves to work in. And that's definitely a big part of the culture. And then uh, we're always trying to think of if we were this new person that we hired in Tallinn, like if that was me, mm. what, what, what would I like the company to, to do for me or, or do with me? Um, and, and it helped, it helped that the, the first people that we hired, the, um, a lady called Treen that we hired in, uh, in Tallinn, she hired lots of other people like, similarly minded as um, mm-hmm. as her and, and that's definitely a big part of the original culture that you have similarly minded people similar mm-hmm. values and they would kind of uh, optimize for similar things mm-hmm. so that's it's definitely the start of this and once you get bigger you're right that it, it does uh, it does require some method mm-hmm. so the first uh, the funny experience for us was uh was not so much with our Ukraine, Ukraine and Italian team. There were, we have a, like a lot of Slavic, uh, culture, culturally more Slavic people in Estonia. So the, the, that, that's easy. Yeah. So they kind of understand each other and get along. But once we had, once we opened up a Tampa office, which is like mostly the, Latin Americans, um, Latin Americans, but also deeply American. Yeah. It's more American than San Francisco or, True. or New, New York. The, the early, Tampa team and the way we started the Tampa team was uh, was one of our uh, customer support leads in in Tallinn moved over to there and started a team and picked the the good right people etc but even then once the dream team grew it got quite clear that uh, they just think Estonians are just rude they're just so blunt. so blunt rude yeah. it's like they're ter- <laughs> terrible <It's> people <laughs> yeah because uh, and, th- and then 
and then Canestonians have similar misconceptions about the, the tampons. Yeah. But then once you bring them together into yeah. our summer days and they team up and do an adventure race together, yeah. kind of understand, yes, they're different people, but yeah. they're like good people. They want the same thing. It's just have different yeah. ways of working. Different cultures. Yeah. And in Florida has like a, such a diverse mix of people, you know, ranging from, you know, Latin migrants to, to Americans. So it's, it must have been entertaining to, to go to those races. But if we look at the things that are, if we look at, if we look at people, we've covered people. If we look at a couple of the operational things and maybe I'll, I'll let you pick which one of these you want to, you want to address. But what are the things that you've struggled with the most in your growth as a CEO? You know, sales, biz dev, partnerships, you know, some of the key partnerships you have today. What were the bits that, that, um, you, you maybe were intuitive or the ones that were, you know, wow, I, it took a while for me to get this. This is a very good question because everything is hard. Like there's, uh, there's nothing harder than people. There's, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the way our product works, it's more marketing led than biz dev or sales. Mm -hmm. Marketing is not easy. Like the financials behind marketing is not mm -hmm. easy. The financials behind product is not easy. Mm -hmm. Um, given my background, I, I probably found the, um, uh, the technical topics easier. Mm -hmm. uh, how to set up a treasury because uh, I kind mm -hmm. of it's, it's easy I'm trained as an engineer kind of can figure this out uh, write it up mm -hmm. and code it if needed yeah but then uh, actually the hard part is not kind of doing the maths behind it the yeah. hard part is bringing people along with you yeah but kind of they it's, it's actually even harder when you get it faster than others yeah. just because you're somehow more context or background but um uh, it's definitely the people like how do you how do you bring people along how do you get them to to work um so for me independence is a big thing so how do you get people to work independently so that i don't become a bottleneck um that's that's hard but on the other hand we've been lucky because on all of those topics we had time to learn we had time to make mistakes and mm. we were careful enough none of these mistakes were expensive we definitely spent too much in marketing at times and did definitely the marketing campaigns that were, were not paying off and, and losing money, but we learned something from them. At least we learned not to do these kinds of things any, anymore. Uh, we launched markets that we had to close down a few weeks later, realizing that the, what our part, the API that our partner had sold us actually didn't exist. Oh, wow. <laughs> that we kind of, we spent time integrating against uh, an API document that was just written by someone that actually didn't have an oh, wow. API behind there. So there's, there's lots of, uh, lots of things like this, but luckily for us, most of them have, have just made us, they made us stronger. Yeah. And there hasn't been a, uh, there hasn't been a, there hasn't been a theme. We have, we just had like millions of, mm. millions of little fuck ups that, mm. Yeah, and the ideal world could have could have been avoided, but I'm I'm not sure if I wish for that ideal world because then we wouldn't have learned anything. Mm. In in the Matrix, there's this one scene where you know Neo gets Kung Fu downloaded to him, right, to shortcut the learning process. If you look back down all these past years, if you could call Tank and ask him to download something that you struggled with as a personal as you personally as CEO that you would recommend for founders to like invest early, what would it have been? Patience. I think generally, generally patience and uh, 
like over over communication mm. and that's 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 not that's what every, everyone will tell you like everyone who I would ask for advice would tell me you just need to over communicate you just need to communicate much more than uh, than you think is necessary mm. but I still think to do that somehow so so I think uh, and then being patient of if things don't happen the way that you 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 want them to then uh, just take your time the world's not going to end mm. and and do it in a good way because at the end of the day you're you kind of had the you have the you have the team that you're playing with you, it, it's more important that the team is happy that you play with yeah and whether whether you're gonna f- win the first half yeah uh, as long as you win the game it's mm. a good point before we move on to crystal the person i guess i want to understand how you manage being a focused product company versus a company that is tempted to expand into other un- other product types, right? Because you can expand one product across many geographies over a lot more people, or you can, the geographies you currently have, start layering other financial products on top of it more and more. And how do you balance that? There's uh, that's a very, very good question. I don't have, I don't have a method. There is, every founder's probably felt there is a, uh, there's FOMO, yeah, a lot of it, and it doesn't help if your investors have some of that, uh, some of that too, because they see other companies being successful in doing something else, and then yeah. think, but I have this company, I want them to do this other thing as well. Yeah, so this is uh, this can come from different ways. It can come from the investors a little bit, but it can come from your own team as well, mm. because they see that either some someone that looks like a competitor is doing something better and is asking like why aren't we doing this and these many of these questions are, are actually very good so you kind of need to think through like why not and what is the what is the what is the problem that we're solving mm. so we we have again the luxury that the that the problem that we're solving is in is enormous and we have made very little progress in solving that problem mm. yet we have built a profitable mm. large uh, enterprise at some point in time um, probably now four years ago it got very clear to us that we should write down our mission it was always intuitively clear mm. what we're doing but then uh, it was helpful for for us when we were I guess five six hundred people actually write it down what is it what exactly are we doing and that gives us a way how to so when we get nervous about someone doing something sexy, it's just kind of checking back, is this going to solve our mission in any better way or not? And then if not, then as long as we still think that we're working on the right valuable mission that is kind of worth, worth our time working on, we should just keep going. And, and we can, so the, the idea when you have the mission written down, you, you can basically, take yourself out of the picture and everyone can validate against the mission independently like yeah. whether the FOMO the worry the, the excitement that they have about something is just their excitement yeah which is fine you can be excited about this uh, but when you kind of join the team the rest of us are there we have something in common we're kind of solving this problem yeah so it's not it's definitely not easy this problem is there for us it was the the, the writing down of the mission and the luxury that the mission is so big, uh, so valuable, and we're still in the beginning that 
<laughs> it would be stupid to do something else than than this. Yeah, that helps. That helps at least provide like a, a foundation for which people can make decisions. All right. Well, we always like to conclude with questions about the person, um, not not necessarily related to work, but maybe your opinions and, and sort of your life. And I think one of the key things that's tricky, being a family man, um, being a founder, is balancing work life. Um, how how do you do that, or, or what recommendation do you make for founders that are kicking off that might be balancing a family life and personal finances? It's a hard question. I failed probably for the first couple of years, and it was it was hard because, uh, as I explained, we were kind of growing so fast that we wouldn't be able to we weren't able to operate the business yet. We we couldn't fuck up. Yeah. Uh, it was coined by Tabat actually. It was mm-hmm. his his phrase that I think he embedded, and it was a really good one in the early days. That we have we have there's two things that we need to do really well. We need to grow because that kind of yeah means that we're worth uh, we're worth it's worth doing the job, and we can't fuck up. So can do these things. So, so there were definitely times we were growing very well, but. It's not. You need to put in a lot of work not to not to fuck up because yeah. that was that uh, that would kill you when you when you especially when you handle people's money. So in the early days, uh, there was there were there were Christmas evenings where I was uh, I was debugging some some code or 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 solving our customer issue, but then I do recall pretty clearly that that there was probably three or four years in when we had enough stuff that. It wasn't necessary for me to be involved. It was such. It was actually a huge relief where I knew that if I if I if I'm away, if I'm if I end up in a hospital for a, for a couple of weeks, I take a holiday. It's actually nothing bad. Bad's gonna happen. Mm. That was. Uh, it's probably like three years in, mm. but it was a cute. It was a huge kind of mental mental relief. How many people were there by the time that that happened? By the time I think we were about 45, 50 okay. people. Uh, maybe maybe a few few more maybe fifty five yeah and 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 you have you know you've you've achieved so much and of course you have corporate goals you know you have the goals for the company the vision the the mission the employees but as an individual do you have goals that you have that are not necessarily related to transferwise now that to some extent you've been able to take some time to reflect on them I'm pretty pretty bad at like personal structuring personal life um, I similarly as companies have FOMO like should we working should we working another pro, pro, product or should be uh, addressing another problem like mm. people have FOMO as well like mm. should I be doing this with my life or mm. should I be doing um, something else so this is something that I have evaluated over time mm-hmm. and in order for me to kind of get out of the bed on Monday morning and come to work, I need to be clear that this is the most valuable thing that I can do with my life yeah. for the next coming week. So I do this uh, kind of ingrained in me that I, I do evaluate that. Like, is, is this work that I do the most valuable, is valuable thing where I, I'm most useful and where, and it's kind of important for me because we, we don't know what the meaning of life is. Yeah. We can only, we can only guess. And, uh, again, lucky for me, I can take enough time for my, uh, for my, for my wife out of it, for my, for my family, and uh, have the luxury of taking 
taking holidays. It's yeah. pretty good. So yeah, it's investing in your in your mental well being, basically. And you know, I, the the funny thing about these last years, as we've seen the fintech industry evolve, and it's almost night and day from when you know Transfrise first started to where it is today. We th- we look back at some of the things that we accepted in the early days of fintech world and think, oh my god, how did we let that exist? And similar examples is you know we look back a hundred years and we see that slavery existed. We think, how did we ever let that happen? What do you think we'll look back on fifty years from now to this era to today and look back? How did we let that as a humanity happen? <laughs> and you're not allowed to say. Bad exchange rates. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, though, that not uh, that the regulators not regulating against um, against hiding fees and exchange rates. I do think that over time we'll look back. Similarly, like uh, you know, like in credit cards, we have these APR yeah. things. Yeah. Like, how was it possible that before the before this thing was regulated, that people could do all sorts of shady hide hide their interests in a kind of shady places. Yeah. I do think we'll have the same in, uh, in exchange rates as well. But in terms of how we, I do think in terms of the core, like the, the culture of, uh, of companies, yeah. I'm afraid like 50 years from now, 50 years, maybe too long, but I think yeah, 20, 10, yeah, 10 20. 20 years from now, engineers are going to be so, uh, so much more powerful as a as a role so mm. the role of an engineer or the role of product is going to be even more powerful mm. than uh, uh, than it that is today I think 10, 20 years maybe 30 years from now and we'll think back to okay we had these companies where like engineers were doing what they were told and we had these like business people and kind of bankers and then Engineers were kind of mm. these, uh, these people in the corner that were kind of being told what to build and, uh, and could not listen to. So this has already changed immensely in the yeah. last 10 years. But I think that's going, going on. And in all these other roles that we have in companies today that seem important today, they're, I think they're going to lose the, they're going to lose the importance. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a good thing. I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an engineer. Uh, <laughs> I think I think you're right by saying ten years, fifteen years, because in fifty years will be the robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah more exactly. power. So you know we have to make sure that that Skynet doesn't happen. Um, but uh, all right, well with that, Christo, uh, I want to thank you for for your time. It's been super cool to like look back in all these years and and get that that memory down on on tape, if you will. Thanks for joining us. Our last last message. Yes, last message. We're hiring about 135 open roles in Transwise. Nice. All right, guys, you heard it here. Apply for roles at TransferWise. Well, thanks, guys, and until next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.